Thanks for listening to Working Overtime. Before we get to today's episode, we have a really exciting announcement to make. We're now on Patreon. Whether you've just discovered the show or are a longtime and loyal listener, check out patreon.com slash working overtime to learn how you can become a patron and support our content. As a patron, you'll have access to a wide array of bonus content, chances to interact with Karen and show guests, and even hop on episode recording sessions with us. Check out all of the great benefits of patronship at patreon.com slash working overtime. Now let's fire up the time machine. If I die, it will be in the most glorious place that nobody has ever seen. I can no longer feel the fingers in my left hand. The glacial Antarctic water has seeped through a tiny puncture in my formerly waterproof glove. If this water were one-tenth of a degree colder, the ocean would become solid. Fighting the knife-edged freeze is depleting my strength, my blood vessels throbbing in a futile attempt to deliver warmth to my extremities. The archway of ice above our heads is furrowed like the surface of a golf ball carved by the hand of the sea. Iridescent blue, wedgwood, azure, cerulean, cobalt, and pastel robin's egg meld with chalk and silvery alabaster. The ice is vibrant, bright, and at the same time ghostly, shadowy. The beauty contradicts the danger. We are the first people to cave dive inside an iceberg and we may not live to tell the story. Excerpt from Into the Planet, a thrilling blend of science, adventure, and memoir written by today's guest, Jill Heinerth. Hey there, it's Karen here, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome back to Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of the work we do as human beings, over time, and across cultures. Today's show takes us to some of the deepest, darkest, and most awe-inspiring settings planet Earth has to offer. We're doing a deep dive into deep diving as it happens. Specifically, the perilous quest to discover and map unexplored caves in our ocean's harshest, most remote corners. Our guide is the intrepid Jill Heinerth a renowned underwater explorer and cave mapper whose projects span decades and whose insistence that discovery is the driving force of human advancement is an inspiration to us all. Jill's taking us back to the earliest days of her profession. That's all the way back to 350 BCE, when ancient divers employed astonishingly complex tools and techniques to explore the oceans whose surfaces were inscrutable but whose depths yielded deep-sea resources and the intangible rewards of piercing that watery veil to behold an entirely different world. We'll also examine how the modern profession of underwater exploration is transforming our understanding of what really lies beneath the water that covers over 70% of Earth's surface, and how what's down there relates to what's happening up here, past, present, and future. So, strap on those rebreathers and join our plunge into the vast uncharted seas. With Jill at the helm, it's sure to be an adventure to remember. According to filmmaker James Cameron, and I quote, more people have walked on the moon than have been to some of the places that our next guest has gone right here on Earth. So, I'm pretty excited to have Jill Heinerth with us. She's going to be speaking about ancient underwater map makers. And, you know, she's essentially, if we, I I suppose, had to do say one thing, she's a cave diver. And if if that sounds a little bit strange, well, listen on. This woman can do and has done just about everything. (laughs) Um, Jill is a Canadian cave diver, an underwater explorer, writer, photographer, filmmaker, and climate advocate. She's led expeditions into icebergs in Antarctica, volcanic lava tubes, and submerged caves around the world. She's the first explorer in residence of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. And her book, Into the Planet, has been acclaimed by the Wall Street Journal, Oprah Magazine, the New York Times, and National Public Radio. 
Jill's a fellow of the International Scuba Diving Hall of Fame, the Underwater Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the Explorers Club, which awarded her with the William Beebe Award for Ocean Exploration. Jill, thank you so much for finding time in your amazingly busy, exciting schedule to talk to us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited to hear you um, train your explorer's lens to this topic of ancient underwater map makers. Yeah, I mean, we're all explorers and not a lot has really changed when we start looking into ocean exploration in all of these thousands of years. Well, it'd be great if you could just orient our listeners first, give us the 101, where are we and at one time period you know, for the most part that you're going to be talking about today? Well, I mean, I'm going to take us actually from 4500 BC right up into uh, current days and, and what's coming in the future for underwater exploration and, and survey. But it, it really begins, um, you know, 4500 BC is a, is a great place to start. Sounds good to me. Excellent. And I wonder if you could just explain to us what underwater cartography is, you know, and how, how is it different from map making on the ground? Well, map making in, in any case is about, you know, expanding our, our knowledge and sharing it with others. It's, it's really the foundation of exploration. When I explore an underwater cave, for example, and I go somewhere that nobody's ever been before, I have to make a map. And if I don't make a map, it's like the exploration doesn't even count. And I mean, we can look to the Apollo astronauts, you know, besides walk, seeing these guys walking around on the surface of the moon, we also saw, you know, maps of the lunar surface and every little crevice and pocket and, and uh, an area that they explored. Oh, I love that. And in fact, when, when you said that without a map, the expedition doesn't count. I mean, it's actually exactly the same with archaeology and that that's why you know, context is everything. If you pull something out of the ground and you don't map it and record it and report it, well, you might as well have not done it. So that I understand it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well, the earliest explorers, I mean, back, you know, 4500 BC or even even earlier, we just don't have necessarily records to know what people were doing before that. But but some of the earliest efforts to sort of go to the sea and and learn about what was underwater and then map it was really all about finding and gathering food or things that could be potentially traded with other people. And maybe even a little bit to do with uh, perhaps warfare and, and competition. So there's very tribal tribal roots to ocean exploration, but also, uh, you know, the roots of, of finding sustenance. Yeah, I mean, people are hunter-gatherers, and if some of what they need is only available at the bottom of the sea, well, they're going to have to figure out how to get it or how to do without, right? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, and some very early cultures actually learned uh, early on that, that things like fish row uh, or even fatty fish like, you know, salmon in uh, the native Canadian history uh, ends up being a very precious thing because they recognize that those, those fatty, uh, uh, you know, foods would, would help stimulate um, healthy people and healthy pregnant women, for instance, like in, in some early indigenous cultures, they would save the, the roe from the fish, the fattiest part of the fish for pregnant women or young children. Oh, so interesting. And, and of course, we know today how valuable omega-3 acids are and that they come largely mm -hmm. from fatty fish, right? So yeah, it's amazing, this ancient wisdom. Um, we're not quite so advanced, comparatively speaking, as we think sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, now we go to Amazon to order a capsule on the, <laughs> exactly. on the computer. But yeah, but these people were mapping, you know, locations of where you might find salmon or uh, where you would get roe. Yeah. Let's kind of look over the shoulder of somebody who's waking up in the morning. It is their task to go underwater and map an area for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. It could be to find salmon roe. What's mm -hmm. on their mind and, and, you know, what are they thinking about as they get ready for work? Well, you know, I think the the whole exploration act of exploration is is um, actually genetic. I mean, there has to be a balance in society where some people stay home and tend the crops and and make a warm home to come 
come back to. And then there are other people like me who are just inherently explorers, the hunter gatherers, as you say, that go out and uh, into the uh, into the wilderness and find things and and make maps and and uh, allow others to follow along. And it turns out this is probably genetic. About 15% of the population has something called a 7R gene that makes us inherently curious and makes us want really? to explore. What yeah. is it? What is it again? 7R? The 7R gene, the adventurer's oh. gene. It's the DR, uh, D4 allele that makes us, you know, not necessarily risky because some people uh, mistake sort of risk for exploration. It doesn't make us risky. It just makes us curious. It makes us go out into the world and explore. I've never heard of that. That is so interesting. And and yeah, I really like that distinction you make between, um, did you say risky? Yeah, risky and curious. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, you're not out taking risks for, for no reason whatsoever. But I suppose mm-hmm. occasionally when you're out on expedition, you you might have to take a risk to continue your exploring. So oh, it might be yeah. a slightly complex thing. But yeah, it's mm-hmm. certainly not reckless. Exactly. I mean, we don't look at the, uh, you know, the Apollo astronauts standing on the moon and go, oh, my God, those guys are reckless. But, you know, sometimes people look at me and go, what are you out to get yourself killed swimming around in underwater caves? (laughs) It's like, no, no, I'm curious. And I want to bring back information and maps for for other people to follow and, and to, you know, bring the information to humanity about what I might find in these dark places underwater. Oh, all I can say is better you than me, my friend. I am so claustrophobic. So <laughs> I'm really in awe of the ability you have to do what you do. But um, but yeah, so let's let's think about one of these people in antiquity. Mm-hmm. They're getting ready to do their job. Um, you know, what kind of technology did they have? It's going to be probably pretty different from what you're kidding up with. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we could look back to maybe the ancient Egyptians. So around like 4000 BC, we we see some of the very first sailing vessels that enabled these people to get out and onto the Nile. And these might have been, you know, boats that were kind of woven together with reeds and and things. And, and they would have been perhaps paddled or or pulled by a, a large crew. Um, you know, you might have had someone on the back uh, with a... a a, a big sort of paddle-like structure that allowed them to to uh, steer the boat. But when they actually wanted to go underwater to, you know, find sustenance or see what's there, catch fish or whatever, um, they didn't have scuba equipment, obviously. So the very first <laughs> undersea explorers would have been what we call free divers, people that just, you know, dove in, maybe, uh, you know, in their loincloth or... <laughs> or naked, who knows, um, and swam underwater uh, with, you know, great difficulty to see because you can't focus underwater. And uh, they would be perhaps, you know, grabbing a shell or something off the bottom, bringing it back to the surface. Can we eat this? (laughs) So really with, you know, no equipment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the actual map making process, I mean, maybe I'm thinking about it too, literally, you know, did, did mm-hmm. they go back on shore and jot it down on the nearest piece of papyrus in ancient Egypt, do you think? Or was this maybe more mm-hmm. um, uh, sort of remembered knowledge, oral history, so to, yeah. so to speak, oral cartography? Yeah, I think most of this would have been, uh, you know, sharing with, you know, family and friends or your other crewmates on the boat, just saying, hey, if you go to that rock over there around the corner in the bay at, you know, evening time, you're going to see fish, you know, or they were also looking for other things underwater as well. I mean, whether it was fish or shellfish or, or crustaceans to eat, but they also would have been harvesting things uh, like sponges that could have been used um, in other ways. And, um, and so I think they got you know, more and more advanced with their techniques, but pretty much uh, the information would have been shared mostly through storytelling. Yeah, which is in and of itself really interesting too. Um, and I'd love to talk more about that a little bit later. Um, but I'd be really interested to know what we can say about how people, for example, at this time in ancient Egypt, thought about the underwater environment. I mean, do you think they approached it with fear or excitement or all of the above? Yeah, I mean, I think it was probably pretty terrifying (laughs) to them. Um, But, but they were, you know, 
interesting fascinations with, with what lay beneath the surface. I mean, Alexander the Great is a, is a fantastic example. So Alexander the Great actually had a fascination about, you know, what's underwater. He actually made a crude diving bell um, that would allow him to go beneath the surface and see, because that's one of the challenges. Everybody knows if you, you know, dive into a swimming pool and you open your eyes, it's all blurry, you can't see. And so he um, actually went down into the Mediterranean in a, in a diving bell. So, so you could imagine like trying to put a, an inverted like drinking glass into your sink in the kitchen. There's air trapped in that when you press it down under the water. And so Alexander was actually, you know, traveling beneath the surface in one of these big bells with a uh, carved quartz um, sphere that he could look out of like a window so he could see what was underwater and, and then come back and tell everybody about it. Oh yeah, he didn't mess around. I love that story. <laughs> That's so not surprising. I hadn't actually heard about that before, but you tell me this and I, that mm -hmm. doesn't surprise me at all. I, I actually chased Alexander's history across uh, the Western desert of Egypt on a National Geographic project. I, I had read uh, you know, a lot of his, his uh, early, early notes and things and, and learned that he had made a, a journey from Cairo all the way across the Western desert to a little village called Siwa, almost on the Libyan border. And I know this sounds like a really, really strange place to go on a diving expedition <laughs> in the middle of the Sahara Desert. But the reason why I wanted to follow in Alexander's footprints is that he led a great army across the desert because he was beckoned by an oracle. And it turned out the oracle was inside this temple, the temple of Jupiter Almun in Siwa. And when he got to the temple, he had to go inside this room, close the door and consult with the oracle who told him that he was the first true Pharaoh of Egypt. And the huh. oracle is actually a well, so a drinking water well. So they looked to these, you know, water sources and went, oh my gosh, there's gods down there speaking to us, right? Yeah. And so well, I the water is pretty, pretty rarefied medium in those parts, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So he goes into this room and he yells down into the well and the oracle says, you are the first true pharaoh of Egypt. Now go on to conquer the world. And when I read that story, I thought, oh, I've I gotta go see these places. <laughs> like what's wow. there? Cause he envisioned that maybe these, these oases pools in the middle of the desert that had palm trees and, and offered them sustenance and food could potentially be connected by underground water resources. And that like completely got me hooked. <laughs> I needed to wow. go find yeah, that. Yeah, he was a big thinker for his time, wasn't he? That That's oh. quite astonishing. Yeah, I mean, imagine, um, you know, first of all, just having the vision to to go underwater and see this underwater world that nobody had ever spoken of, and then yeah. and then to imagine, you know, harvesting food or or even you know the kinds of opportunities that he might have even for you know surreptitious things like warfare by being able to sneak underwater and maybe sink someone else's ship and and salvage the treasure. So, yeah, there's a, a lot of interesting interesting themes with that early underwater exploration oh I, I that's really an interesting case study I mean definitely definitely a one of the top down variety but, mm -hmm. but yeah I mean testament to this brilliant and incredibly ambitious not to mention brave man yeah. <laughs> so, well you see where we have where it ended him it didn't end all that happily <laughs> he'd have a very long life but it, he packed <laughs> it all in didn't he while he was around yeah oh. And I, and I don't think very many people think about like diving as having its roots that far back. I mean, Aristotle oh, no. writes about diving. No. Yeah, no. yeah. I mean, so, I mean, we can look at philosophers, Greek philosophers like Aristotle, and they actually wrote about early diving exploration. And, um, you know, Aristotle described uh, a bronze tank that could hold a man that could be submerged underwater um, so that he could explore and see things. And that would have been like 350, 360 BC. And I mean, who thinks about these, these early Greek philosophers as being involved in, in diving or observing diving activities? 
Yeah, no, I absolutely. But yet at the same time, it does make sense when you think they were trying to understand the world, the universe and the, you know, in its entirety and humanity's place in it and what it all meant. So yeah, there was a lot of water around. So I, I guess it does make sense. They were thinking about it, but it, but it is extraordinary that mm-hmm. they were actually getting down to the brass tacks of, of trying to, yeah, explore it. Mm-hmm. As we still are. <laughs> I'd love to, to get back to the, the sort of everyday person who might be engaging in mm-hmm. underwater exploration, um, trying to identify the location of valuable resources, perhaps, or a good mm-hmm. place to, to go hide in a, in a battle or something, a skirmish if they need um, the, the power of surprise. So, you know, what kind of credentials would you imagine these people had to, to do it? Probably pure guts, <laughs> but yeah. also, um, you know, they had to be physically uh, ready for the the challenges that they would face from the pressure being exerted on them underwater. So anyone that's dived to the bottom of a swimming pool has probably felt pressure in their sinuses or ears and they've gone, oh my God, that's so painful. Or or they've put on a pair of goggles and felt them just kind of suck against their face and and cause pain. And, and that's because these earliest free divers would have had to know how to equalize uh, the pressure uh, that would be exerted on flexible spaces in their body, like their middle ear, inside their sinuses, so that they would not experience that pain or would not you know, suffer from a, a ruptured eardrum that could be extremely painful. And- yeah, uh, How do you think they figured this out? Well, I, I think probably by trial and error, you know, it, it, even just in a few feet of water, if you don't know how to equalize, you'll, you'll feel this incredible pain. And there, there are stories like back from a thousand BC when, when uh, some of the deep diving techniques were finally kind of, I guess, written down or shared with others, where they would pour oil into uh, their ear canals, but also uh, fill their mouth <laughs> with oil and then they would tie, yeah they would tie a rope around their waist dive off the boat and swim down and I imagine they must have been forcing some of this oil into their into their middle ears or they would have been experiencing pain from that I don't know or, or maybe they were just you know figuring out how to equalize on their own um, and they would swim down and then if uh, they didn't swim back to the surface someone would yank them up by that uh, that tether if they took too long yeah wow I mean that that that's that's pretty hairy so <laughs> all of it from the oil and the orifices to oh no more responsive, but he can't, you know, or, yeah. sorry, but he, he's not responding. Pull him up. <laughs> Pull him up. Yeah. Oh yeah. my goodness. And do we have any sense of whether this kind of activity might've been passed down in families, for example, or, or how was knowledge passed along from one to the other, these early divers? Absolutely. I mean, we have stories of the earliest sponge divers in Greece. So the sponge divers, same situation where they would tie a rope around their waist, they jump off the boat and they go down and they cut as many sponges as they can and stuff them into a bag and swim them back to the surface. They're really, really heavy. Oh yeah, they'd be wet too. They would be heavy, right? Yeah, yeah. And all of that knowledge has been passed down to current sponge fishermen today. Like in Florida, there's a whole community in Tarpon Springs, Florida, that's a Greek community. And those techniques of how to harvest the sponges were passed down you know, to this day. I mean, today they use scuba and they wear heavy uh, lead boots and weight belts, like maybe 60 or 80 or more uh, pounds of lead to sink underwater. They walk on the bottom and cut the sponges with a knife, stuff them in a bag, and they basically run behind the boat attached to a tether <laughs> and, then, oh um, and then eventually surface when they run low on gas. So they're not free diving um, in Tarpon Springs anymore, but they're using the same harvesting techniques. But in other parts of the world, like in Andros and the Bahamas, I spent a, a few days actually with some traditional sponge fishermen who were free diving in exactly the same way they would have done so in a thousand BC. Amazing. Do you think that there was um, a real cachet about 
that kind of work in ancient in ancient Greece, for example? You know, I, I don't know whether these people were, you know, heroes and supernatural or whether they were like the lowest guy on the totem pole, like, like make him do it. He might not come back. Yeah, it's sort of hard to <laughs> kind of cut. You could weigh both, both um, views and think they're equally likely. Yeah. yeah I don't, I, I'm not aware of, you know, any evidence of, of whether these people were a high or a low rank in, you know, society and castes or, or, or whatever, you know, it, I mean, to this day, people sort of look at people who explore the undersea world as having some sort of a you know superpower or or bravery. Um, but I'm I'm not sure, you know, whether it was you know heroes or slaves that were were thrown off the boat back in those days. I mean, I I have to wonder, you know, today. I mean, the, the sea sponge industry obviously is financially lucrative, and it's why people are doing it. Mm-hmm. But I wonder in those days, you know. Um, do we know if, if these divers were paid a great deal? Yeah, I don't know. And, and there's other cultures too. I mean, you could look at Korea, for instance. There are still uh, women hang now, uh, divers in Korea that uh, have passed down this information generation after generation. And these are our old women, many of them, you know, some of them in their 80s that uh, free dive for food resources for the community. And they are revered in society. They are very, very special. These women can hold their breath and swim down and harvest uh, food for eight or 10 minutes holding their breath before they surface. I thought that your brain begins to die after something like four minutes. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Free divers. uh, are are phenomenal you know harnessing what is truly possible uh with the human body and um we have something called the mammalian diving reflex when we go underwater our heart rate drops and then obviously we're not breathing anymore and um and the pressure kind of assists in in um sort of amplifying i guess some of the the available oxygen supplies to us but uh free divers heart rates are extremely low and some of these you know hinyao uh divers are just superhuman <laughs> in their in their physiology but yeah we're capable of much more than people can imagine oh yeah and you know i suppose um it might develop from this sort of um adaptive behavior into something that's genetically Mm -hmm. favored in in a community. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. But, you know, we're all capable. I mean, I used to teach a little water babies class uh, in the swimming pool. So infants in the water and um, infants, if you throw them in the water, like really young ones, don't like gasp a lung full of water. They actually naturally um, hold their breath and are able to swim underwater for a long time. So, you know, we all grew up in the, the ocean of our mother's womb <laughs> and, right. uh, and then we slowly sort of shake that, um, that, uh, you know, adaptation as we, as we become air beings and, and yet we can still call back to those very primal roots and uh, become uh, quite remarkable with our breath holding and free diving capabilities. I mean, I, I think we can imagine what some of them are, but are there any risks of doing this that, that we might not immediately think about this sort of ancient free diving activity? Oh, sure. I mean, obviously, if you stay down too long, um, <laughs> that's a problem. But uh, what happens to the body when you, when you free dive is as you go down and the pressure increases and increases and increases, what it does is it increases the partial pressure of oxygen um, in your tissues. So um, it's sort of amplifying the oxygen that's available to you. But if you stay down too long, as you start to swim back up and the pressure is reduced, then you may meet a threshold where there's not enough oxygen to sustain consciousness. So people will pass out actually almost as they're reaching the surface or even on the surface from hypoxia, from lack of oxygen. Now, if someone's on the ball, they can revive that person uh, quickly, usually, uh, not always, um, but that would have been the biggest risk really is what we call shallow water blackout. But there would have been risks too from animals they might have encountered, marine mammals underwater. Um, they might have, uh, you know, been 
trapped or stuck because I mean some of these early underwater explorers were were not just going for food or for sponges but they were actually uh, going inside of shipwrecks shipwrecks that they might have had a hand in sinking and trying to bring treasure back to the surface oh, so yeah. they could have gotten stuck or trapped in some of those spaces some of the water they might have been in was cold too so hypothermia could have been a risk yeah, the, the list is so long. It really <laughs> makes you appreciate all the more that people really wanted to do this. It just makes me wonder all of the dangers. Um, how likely is it people went on their own? Oh, I doubt very many people went on their own. I think I think a lot of this was was teamwork based. And I can imagine that people probably had had reputations, you know, like, oh, you know, <laughs> uh, Homer over there can stay underwater for eight minutes. <laughs> and, right. Oh, well. So I'm, I'm sure there was this, uh, this competition <laughs> as there still is. Um, but, but I think, you know, we kind of lost maybe, you know, a thousand years. Um, and, and, and there's this huge, huge gap where we, we then pick up much later, like in the 1500s with, with, technology and I, and I think in a completely different maybe not different purposes but a, a different approach to diving but I still think all of it had to uh, have involved teams in order to do anything um, you know if somebody goes down to the bottom and retrieves a, tr a treasure it might be just to tie a rope on it so someone can pull it back to the surface same thing with sponges uh, so it would have required a boat and people rowing the boat and teams to pull things up and and probably many free divers. It's not like you can do a lot of dives in a day. So there were probably a whole class of people that were capable of this swimming underwater. And and that really makes me think more to, you know, in, into the, the modern day bit. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if you could just sort of even in general terms kind of describe for us you know, what are the differences mm -hmm. in diving today? Obviously there's technology differences, but you know, are, are there any principles that are still pretty much the same? There, there really is a lot that's the same. I mean, it, what began as free diving back in those, you know, very ancient times, uh, then kind of shifted into more technology-based diving, like going down in bells and, and um, even early development of submarines and things um, again all still involving a big team of people sending one person down into this dangerous mysterious environment maybe for food maybe for treasure uh, quite often for warfare um, so after this sort of age of exploring using diving bells and even some of the earliest sort of submarine type apparatuses I think the next move was really how do we give a diver independence so that they are not tethered to a boat or returning, you know, swimming up and down to a boat so that they can be underwater for a period of time to explore. And, and that required things like early uh, rebreathers and scuba technology. And um, although there were some early what we call rebreathers as far back as 400 BC, uh, we are still developing oh. the modern technology today. So what may I interject? What's yeah. a rebreather? So a rebreather is is it differs from scuba. Like most people can think of a scuba diver and they picture a person with a tank on their back and they inhale from the tank and when they exhale they make bubbles. And that's what we call, you know, Jacques Cousteau's aqualung or traditional scuba or open circuit scuba, but that didn't come around until the 1940s. But rebreathers, which are the most advanced form of life support, are exactly the same thing that we use uh, like to make a, a spacewalk from the International Space Station. And it will recirculate your exhaled breath, clean the carbon dioxide out of the exhaled breath, and then inject tiny bits of oxygen back into the breathing mixture so that you have the optimal life support gases at all times without making bubbles. So you're recirculating or recycling your exhaled breath. And back in 400 BC, they thought, well, we'll just give someone a flexible bag, which was actually made of a goat's uh, stomach, right? And let them breathe. Delicious. Yeah. <laughs> let them breathe in and out of the flexible bag and go underwater. And they thought, well, this will allow them to swim along, around on their own and stay for longer. And it worked for 
a little bit because they could actually, you know, force exhalations in and out of the bag. But the carbon dioxide build up and those people kept passing out and, and drowning. Yeah, <laughs> how big are goats' stomachs? That's right. <laughs> so sort of seems kind of finite. But that's amazing that they figured that out without. Right. Yeah. Well, obviously, I you know I stopped myself because it may not have been that they understood the science, but they understood some of the underlying principles yeah. that govern yeah. respiration. That's amazing, actually. Well, yeah, they didn't understand everything, but they knew they had issues to overcome. Like even in those early diving bells, like like if I take a garbage can and wear it on my shoulders and try to pull that garbage can underwater, first of all it's going to be very difficult to do. It's going to need a whole lot of lead weight to pull it underwater. Like if you've ever tried to pull an air mattress off the surface of a swimming pool, it ain't gonna happen, right? So you need a lot of weight to, to bring that thing underwater. But then once you're underwater, the deeper you go, that airspace in that garbage can gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller as the air is compressed and it gets denser. But as you inhale and exhale, then you're also letting the carbon dioxide build up in that space. And, and that will eventually make you pass out. So whether it was that goat's uh, stomach or an early diving bell, they had to contend with those physical limitations. And that's what we've been trying to fix, like, you know, through, through the centuries ever since then to make diving safer and more accessible and give people more range. Yeah. And and, and that actually is a great segue to what I'd love to talk about next, which is, you know, one key area that, that you've been so involved in mm -hmm. underwater, which is the exploration aspect, the mapping aspect. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think it, I just, I, it, it's, what do you think it is about, about humans and that we just seem to have this natural affinity to, you know, want to pinpoint and describe Oh boy. Well, I still think I'm like a, a kindergarten kid that just loves show and tell, <laughs> you know, just driven from my, my inner being, the need to explore and, and document and share, you know, um, there's no point it, it, far beyond the, it doesn't count if you don't map it, but, but there's no point unless my work has a purpose. If I'm going to take a risk, uh, then I need to bring back the goods and be able to share the information with others and extend the bounds of, of human knowledge. And I, I loved, I, I was watching one of your video clips and I, I loved this, this sentence you said it, it was, uh, I'm paraphrasing, I'm sure you were much more eloquent, but you know, if we're not exploring, there's no way we can ever learn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've got to be willing to kind of step into the darkness and, you know, write the handbook for other people to follow. And, and when it comes to the kind of mapping that I do uh, in caves, it's actually, you know, much of it is still quite primitive and some of it is incredibly advanced in space age. Uh, like the very earliest. Tell us about it. Tell us yeah. about how, how your, your work proceeds. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've just given us two ends of a spectrum. So it's sometimes quite crude and primitive and sometimes it's sure. really space age. So just give us an idea of, of what each kind might look like along mm -hmm. that spectrum. Mm -hmm. So once I found a, a place that I believe might be an underwater cave with branching conduits. I mean, this is a water-filled space beneath your feet that branches off like the branches of a tree. You know, the, the first challenge is just finding it. But then when I'm actually swimming underwater and going into this place for the very first time, a place that no human has ever been, I'm actually using a large reel of string, like double braided <gasps> nylon string. <laughs> you drop you drop crumbs behind you and hope that the fish don't eat them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So wow. I literally tie the end of the string in the open water so that I if 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 everything goes wrong, when I get to the end of that string, I'll be able to go straight up to the well, you can go back right like if it were if it got dark or something just horrific happened well i'm swimming into a completely dark environment that you know the only oh, light it's already dark yeah. oh my gosh okay <laughs> the only lights are the ones that i bring so i bring primary lights and backup lights and i i string this reel you know into the cave very carefully so i'll literally um sometimes be squeezing through a space that's as small as the space under your bed and at other times swim through a space that's as big as a football stadium all filled with water and I have to find like a rock 
that I can secure the line to with a, with a loop and a twist so that it doesn't move. So that when I, um, if I have a situation where I've lost the visibility because the silt gets stirred up, which is quite frequent when you're exploring, I have to be able to follow that guideline just by holding onto it with my hand loosely. So it's a tactile reference all the way back out. But beyond that, it is also the first step of the map because this, this string through the environment is what I use to survey my initial exploration. So I'll go into the unknown, find little tie-offs, and maybe after a thousand feet, if I'm really, really lucky, I'll turn around and I've got to survey that using a compass and um, estimating the distances on the string with knots or by using a fiberglass tape to measure from basically corner to corner. Every time I tie off the string, that's a new survey station. And I slowly work myself out of the cave, usually not seeing very much because just you know my passage through a new environment or my bubbles hitting the ceiling will obliterate the visibility. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that is incredible. And so you have measured all of these waypoints really and mm -hmm. guidelines. You know what? Mm -hmm. I, this is one of those, oh, obviously moments, but that's where the word comes from. Mm -hmm. It must be, Absolutely. right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So these are lifelines if you ask me, but again, that that's the, the kind of yeah. um, not so relaxed diver. I, I did not have a great experience when I tried to do it. Oh, this is not for me. Yeah. Not, no, not in my, not in my DNA. I, I, <laughs> I explore above ground. That's just fine. That works for me. Yeah. But, um, I'm just absolutely mesmerized mm -hmm. by this image of you squeezing through these dark caverns and tying string in waypoint mm -hmm. knots along the way. You use a compass mm -hmm. to measure distances between them. And then how do you, you know, translate those distances to something that's actually yeah. mapped? Yeah. Do, you, do you record them in some kind of other yeah. way while you're down there? Yeah, so uh, first of all, I have to be extremely careful about every waypoint because I'm going to need to be able to take a measurement and look over the top of my compass and not get entangled, whether I can see or not, right? But as I'm coming out of the cave, I'm getting basically the depth, I'm getting um, the estimated distance between the waypoints, uh, so that kind of information, and the, and the azimuth or the compass angle to the next waypoint. And when I get out of all of that, then I have to take that data and literally plot it with a protractor. And then all I have is a line map. So that tells me basically like the same information that you would have if you were following a line map of a trail hiking through the woods. But what it doesn't tell you is what's around you. So is the passage small? Is it big? Is it, is it like a tall passage or is it like squeezing under the bed? So it takes many dives to then go back and describe and draw oh, and sketch wow. each, you know, passageway around you in order to get something that, that looks, you know, useful to, to another diver. It's a very slow process. And that's why we've- So you do multiple passes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we've, um, tried to find better technologies that could condense that workflow and make it an easier job. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I guess what I was trying to, to get my head around is whether you were essentially using a, a compass that has um, GPS functionality, but it, um, when you're in the cave, is that the case? No, no. I mean, you can't get GPS coverage underwater. Yeah, it's too far or, down. Or I just, I know I was thinking, well, how would that work? You know, the satellite probably doesn't go down 30 meters. So that you'll see, and that's a really fascinating mm -hmm. moment for mm -hmm. us in a world in which, you know, we can't imagine yeah, yeah. life without GPS or using it to, to find your way from point A to point B. So this is seriously analog mapping, old <laughs> world, true exploring. Well, back about 20 years ago, we, um, I mean, we were still really at the point where most scientists would look at cave divers and say, oh, you're just a bunch of, of risky sports enthusiasts out to get yourself killed. And so we uh, did a project that created the world's very first three-dimensional map, but a three-dimensional map that was registered with the topside type to, um, topography. And that had never been 
done before. And it was really that project just over, you know, more than 20 years ago now that helped us uh, to show scientists that we could be useful, that we could um, develop accurate maps uh, that would show us how the, you know, the water conduits related with things that were on the surface of the earth. And, and, um, and that's really important for understanding our hydrology and our drinking water and, and protecting it. Yeah. And, and that actually brings me to a, another question I had, uh, which is, can you talk to us about how your work dovetails with ocean conservation work? Well, really, we can't conserve things that, that we that we can't survey and document. So, you know, we need to know the location of where things are. I mean, we don't have Google Oceans yet, right? <laughs> it sounds like you're well on your way to developing it, Jill. Well, I hope so. But, <laughs> but so, you know, inventorying and surveying these things that we can't easily see and experience is... is is so important to every aspect of, of science, whether you're talking to a you know, paleoclimatologist or a biologist, we need to know, you know where things are and, and how they're all interconnected uh, in order to protect them. Yeah, and so is there any sort of consensus on how much of the ocean remains to be mapped? <laughs> well, I think of the, the oceans and, and the you know, environments like underwater caves to be really one of the last great frontiers of exploration. We, we say that we know more about space than we do about our underwater environments. And, and quite often we're developing technology for space in these underwater environments. Even you know, mapping devices for space are first tested in these underwater environments like inside caves. Well, that is such an interesting point. And I would love to know what you think about it. I mean, why do you think it is that we've invested so much energy and, and technological expertise has been poured into the space race, really, um, and not to being better acquainted with the oceans, which we can just stick our toes in anytime, you know? <laughs> it seems a little bit weird in a way. Yeah, I, I think it's a series of misfortunate things um, that happened. So the space race and the um, you know underwater exploration race were sort of moving hand in hand, and and then there was a there was a terrible um, accident that that happened that um, that really put a halt to some of our you know man in the sea explorations and. Um, and we didn't go back. And so it's interesting. You you look at the Apollo stuff, and there were there were moments when we could have given it all up. But we, yeah, I was going to say that you know if we want to use that argument though, wow, they they just kept going back for more pain in 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 space <laughs> in space rocketry and all of that. Interesting. Yeah, but there were times where well, you know, humankind kind of lost interest in the in in Apollo, didn't it? I mean, we we stopped tuning in on the television to, that's to watch. Right. The that's why Apollo 13 was all the more incredible, right? Because nobody was even watching it. Yeah, yeah. And with with undersea exploration, we were watching Jacques Cousteau on TV when I was a when I was a kid. Um, and yeah. I guess when things became more routine, we became less interested. But but the sort of government um, investments in some of the early um, sort of seafloor mapping and man in the sea type of explorations uh, literally literally got cut off from um, uh, some of these, these um, early mishaps, I guess. I also sort of wonder if you could imagine any correlates to this search for ways to find, you know, an alternate home for us earth dwellers in space which I think a lot of the, the sort of um, space research has been mm -hmm. geared around this idea ultimately that, you know, we might need to be on a space station or on another mm -hmm. planet, mm -hmm. especially if we continue trashing our own. But do you think that there's any, any correlate oh. in kind of oceanic Absolutely. life in the future. Absolutely. I mean, you know, water is the essence of life. We, you know, we search for water on other planets so that we can decide whether we want to go explore them because we think there might be life there. So isn't it ironic that we're searching for water on other planets and that yet we've barely explored what's here on our own? <laughs> so, yes, it is. Yeah. It is. And, and I guess, you know, the, the, you know, next question that pops into my mind is, well, could you envision any way in which we could harness 
the undersea world to provide, you know, an alternative, an escape hatch from earth into the water. Sure. I mean, we have a lot, we have a lot to learn. I mean, that mapping device that I, that I drove through cave systems in, in Florida back in 1998, making the first three-dimensional map of a subterranean space. I mean, that technology is going to go to Jupiter's moon Europa because there's a liquid ocean beneath the frozen surface. And so an early explorer of Europa will be a cave diver, but it'll be a robot, an artificially wow. intelligent robot cave mapping device. And that's what that device from 1998 has become. It's it's an autonomous mapper cave diver that will swim around, um, survey beneath that frozen surface and send the telemetry back to us and say, hey, there's stuff living here or or there's you know what we need in order to uh you know harvest and make fuel with the hydrogen aspect or 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 inhabit a place because there's water so yeah water is kind of the the key to everything isn't it is there any way in which the work that you're doing is directly related to increasing problems that are being identified and talked about uh you know, about pollution of the ocean and of, mm-hmm. of destroying this habitat for so many creatures, but which is, as you say, I mean, it's the stuff of life. So when I swim into a cave, I'm at the beginning of the pipe. Like from the cave, the water flows out and comes out in a spring. And in that spring, uh, it might then form a little run that serves a creek and the creek you know, flows into the river and the river flows out to the Gulf of Mexico. And then the currents carry the water around the bottom of Florida and through the Gulf Stream. And so, you know, everything's connected, but but the water that I'm swimming in is really that sort of beginning of the pipe and can help us envision that really the ocean begins beneath our feet, no matter where you live, the water will soak into the ground and join in the groundwater resources that are moving beneath our feet. And And I think so many people don't think about the water moving inside the planet from one place to another. No, not when you put it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the Florida aquifer has four quadrillion gallons of water locked up inside the rock, like in these sponge-like spaces, some that I can swim through and some where the water is just passing in between grains of sand in the soil substrate from higher points to lower points. So water is moving ubiquitously. (laughs) I don't know if that's a word, but it is moving throughout the planet's, you know, interstitial spaces. So I I understand that you have some amazing cave footage mm-hmm. for um, a shoot that you did with Nat Geo for One Strange Rock. Oh, yes. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, well, for One Strange Rock, I uh, was shooting in the Bahamas in uh, both Abaco and Andros. In Abaco, it's an incredibly beautiful cave system. So imagine it's filled with speleothems. So those are those rock formations, stalactites and stalagmites. So this cave was actually formed when the ocean levels and the water table were much lower. Water would have soaked into the ground and dripped from the ceiling to the floor, creating these crystalline like icicles in essence. So when I swim through these spaces, it looks like I'm swimming through a crystal chandelier. But these um, stalactites and stalagmites, because they were formed over a long, long period of time in Earth's history, um, can teach us a lot about Earth's past climate. We can actually remove a stalagmite from the cave, slice it open, and look at the layers of deposition, kind of in the way you count tree rings when you cut down a tree. I was gonna say, wow. Yeah, so we can actually count back in time. We can find layers of Sahara dust inside speleothems in the Bahamas. So the cave is on one side of the Atlantic Ocean, but material from the Sahara Desert somehow made it into this cave that's now underwater. That Sahara dust during a dry epoch blew across the Atlantic Ocean, was carried down to the surface and slowly um, soaked into the ground with rain, dripped from the ceiling to the floor, you know, carpeting the cave with this orange sand, basically. And then things landed on top of it over the millennia and sealed that that Sahara dust inside the rocks. And, And that teaches us about 
about time. Oh, it does. And, and about connection. I mean, I'm just struck listening to you talk about all of the, the amazing things that you see. And, and really, um, the common denominator seems to be you see connection in the past and the way that, that things that are now so geographically distant weren't really so much in the past. You know, it's funny. I think we're living through a fascinating time. You know, you can, you can put a map, like a printed map in front of a kid and they may not be able to read it anymore because they've grown up with like the dashboard display in the car that constantly corrects. Like you can never get lost because, because your map in your car or your cell phone. Will oh, always... I can get lost, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't go where I mean to go. I'm yeah. somewhere and I always know where it is, but it's not always where I want to be. <laughs> yeah, but Google will fix that for you. They'll just recalculate and give you, you know, a new a new way home, right? So map reading used to be used to be really important, but now all of a sudden it gets corrected for us all. And yet we're having that experience on the one hand, but on the other hand, I think humanity is getting a new sense of appreciation for interconnections of geography. Like nobody who's living through these times of COVID and isolation can ever feel like they are separate from someone on the other side of the planet. They can be infected by this little germ that makes its journey through our interconnections. And those are temporal interconnections. Like we are connected to our past, um, but we are also you know, connected all over the globe and even into space. <laughs> Yeah, it, that is so true. I mean, and, and you realize that it is, in effect, um, not just geographic connections that are made possible by modern travel, but it's economic connections mm -hmm. and it creates cultural connections, just all the communications networks we have, like you say, Zoom. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, it really is kind of mind-blowing food for thought sometimes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I kind of love to imagine you wriggling through a tiny cave opening, thinking these huge thoughts. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, we find like the remains of humans wriggling who wriggled through caves too. <laughs> like, oh, I bet you ago. do. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's um, you know Mayans that were wriggling into a cave to to get ochre. Um, in an ice age mine, essentially ochre that they, they might've used for art or they might've used to cover their body for insect protection. You know, those were early cave explorers. And I would imagine that they must've had some sort of a, a primitive, you know, maybe storytelling, map making um, connection to those caves. You know, hey, there's ochre in this cave or go in there and hang on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean- there's a really interesting developing subfield of archaeology, um, and it's all about trying to understand and reconstruct the oral experience, meaning what you would hear in a space. Mm -hmm. And caves are obviously an incredible place mm -hmm. to do that with echoes and reverberations. And in fact, there's a very interesting set of theories around cave paintings. You know, we mm -hmm. know about these ancient 40,000 year old animals and things like that, well, they're, they're correlating um, when you map them to underground spaces and caves mm -hmm. where the echoes are most effective, where there's a reverberation that you can document in modern sound movement. I mean, it's astonishing. So I, I don't doubt that what you're finding when you're exploring mm -hmm. these caves, the ancient people, they were as curious about them as, as we are today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, it's just the very basics of, of humanity and, and driving society forward is, is it's, it's all born from, from exploration and sharing. So this is probably a hard question for you, but you know, what's, what's one of the, the most sort of incredible or awe-inspiring moments you've had on the job? <laughs> Ooh, boy. So many. I, I'm so fortunate to, you know, do what I love every day, but also to experience things that nobody's ever done before. And and I think one of my one of my favorite expeditions was um, being the first person to cave dive inside an iceberg. Uh, oh, tell us about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, back in 2000, the largest iceberg in recorded history calved away from the Ross Ice Shelf in Antarctica. I remember that. Ah, okay. Yeah, the B-15 iceberg. And so um, 
I led a dive team to go down there and make a very, very harrowing boat crossing from New Zealand, 12 days across the Southern Ocean in 60 foot seas to get to the oh. sea. <laughs> So just getting there was tough, but then um, we were the first to cave dive inside these tunnels and passages that, that go through the network of ice and bring back those first images and, and, and maps. And that's one, that's one cave that nobody will ever scoop. Because in cave diving, when you, uh, when you explore something, you leave off at what we call you know, the end of the line. Like you run out of that string that we run through the cave system. That's the end of the line. And then- All of these great terms. Yeah. They come from spelunking yeah. underwater. Who knew? <laughs> well, so another explorer might come on and tag on to the end of your line, the bitter end, and then roll out another reel into new territory. Um, but the iceberg, that particular iceberg is one that nobody will ever scoop from me because um, literally uh, hours after we exited this one massive cave system we were exploring in a piece of, of the iceberg, the whole thing just shattered and, and broke into <gasps> pieces as far as the eye could see. So we were looking out over a sea of, of broken ice and slush where an enormous chunk of B-15 had once been. And where you were very grateful that you no longer were. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, just wow. hours earlier, I had been literally trapped inside that iceberg from the currents that had picked up unexpectedly and, and trapped us. So I had already had a harrowing fight for my life to get out of that iceberg that day. Um, so in some ways, maybe I was happy to see it gone. <laughs> so what questions remain for you about this amazing world that you explore? Well, for me, I, well, I specialize in, in very advanced forms of life support and image making, and that's my specialty. But I get to work with scientists that have other unique specialties. They don't have the time to become the expert that I am in, in diving. And so I become their eyes and hands in the environment. And I, I work with them to bring them what they need, whether that's a map or whether that's a, an animal or a sample. Um, and so I get to collaborate with all kinds of different scientists. And, and to me, that's incredibly exciting. And the possibilities are endless for, for what we're learning from underwater caves and, and deep ocean environments all around the world. Jill, could you tell us a little bit about your book, Into the Planet, which has found great popular success? It, it sounds like a, a really readable adventure, but give, give us a sneak preview. Sure. Yeah. It's, well, it's a memoir. It's, it's about my life as a cave diving explorer and all of the adventures I've had an opportunity to, to experience. Uh, but it's also about fear. It's about um, facing, embracing fear and discovery and exploration. And so in a way, it's a, it's a good book for our times because it is about going into the darkness and uh, facing risk and challenge and coming out better for it. Oh, absolutely. And where can we find this book? And, and where could listeners find out more about you and your work? Well, both the book and my website have the same name, Into the Planet. So intotheplanet.com. And, uh, you know, these days with everybody isolated, you can easily get it on Amazon. But if you do have a small bookseller, um, I encourage you to support them if you, if you can during these challenging times. I couldn't agree more. Jill, thank you so much for talking to us today about your incredible exploits, which are so much more than, than um, adventure diving, right? I mean, that's clearly a part of it, but it's amazing what the work of people like you is contributing to our understanding of the planet as a whole and, and not just the, the wonders under the sea that are hidden from the eye. Oh, well, thank you. It's been wonderful to be with you today. If Jill's tales of squeezing through tiny, frigid, pitch-black spaces filled with water send your heart pounding, you're not alone. I tried diving more than once, in the balmiest, brightest, most controlled conditions possible, and yeah, nope. Archaeology on land is just about the right exploration speed for me. But Jill's accounts of ancient ocean explorers who paved the way for her own groundbreaking work reinforces for me the essential role that 
curiosity, courage, and, and drive has played in expanding collective human knowledge, basically everywhere throughout history. And speaking of knowledge, it's ironic that we know so much more about space, having invested multiples more, in every sense, in exploring distant planets and galaxies than the waters close enough to dip our toes in any time we want. We have yet to explore so much of the oceans that cover the vast majority of our planet, and the water that's the very stuff of life here on Earth. With the likes of Jill on the case, let's hope this gap will start to close. The job of underwater map making certainly isn't for everybody, but for people like Jill who can and do risk their lives to dive deep in search of information and insights with the potential to solve some of the world's biggest problems, well, I'm pretty much in awe. Thank you, Jill, for all you do every time you gear up and plunge into that deep, dark abyss, heading out for just another day in your office like no other. Until next time, stay well, stay safe, time travelers. Hey there, you can follow today's guest at Jill Heinerth on Twitter. For more information about her amazing work and critically acclaimed book, Into the Planet, check out her website at intotheplanet.com. You can also sign up to receive her monthly newsletter called Exploration Mindset. You'll find the link on her website. For show updates and additional content, follow us on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries. Also, for visibility's sake, if you like the show, consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We're so happy to have the time machine fired up again. We have a slew of riveting new episodes coming on this season, so keep a lookout every other week. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.